Our sermon text will be 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. While you're finding that, I'll tell you a quick story about my grandfather. Uh, he was a phenomenal man, a loving man. Uh, he died when I was finishing the ninth grade, uh, and I had the privilege of being really close to him. Um, before Alzheimer's really wrecked his body and eventually took his life, he also suffered from a pretty severe case of cataracts in his eyes. And before the cataracts got bad, um, he would regularly complain of a dirty windshield when he picked me up from school, those late elementary, early middle school, junior high years. He picked me up every day and I can still remember him pulling the handkerchief out, wiping the inside of the windshield just about every time we came to a stop sometimes reaching his long arm, he was taller than I am, around the outside and wiping it. And initially I thought, maybe he can see something I can't, but it was the eye floaters. He, he was seeing, he was in, incapable of not focusing on a thing that wasn't there. And that wasn't any fault of his own. He had the fault of living in a fallen world. Our eyes go bad. I've got my glasses up here. Mine are starting to go that same direction. But I wonder if, if I can use that example, if you and your Bible are like that. If you have an ability to see a thing that's not really there. And then you focus on that thing so much that you're actually distracted from what you should have seen. So the windshield's not dirty, it's clear, but you've got to laser focus on something that's moving you away from the main thing God's trying to say. Well, there were people in the local church at Ephesus, probably smaller than this church, in the first century, who were part of that congregation. They had professed faith in Christ, but they were, to use shorthand, false teachers. They were majoring on the minors. They were using Bible verses to do it. And they were distracting people away in the church from the main point. And his name is J-E-S-U-S. They were using God's word in an ungodly way. They were using the Bible unbiblically, or they were to quote God, they were using the law unlawfully. The problem wasn't with the law. The problem is that they were really good at finding a little thing, it's not the main point, and majoring on it and distracting people away using God's word from God's son. That's a big problem. And in last week's passage, we saw that problem, verses 3 to 11. In this week's passage, we see the solution. Verses 12 to 17. You know, God doesn't mince words about how big a deal it is to him to use his word to distract people from his son. Whether it's a third grade Sunday school class or a hallway conversation, whether it's a formal setting or an informal influence, God said, do not let many become teachers because they will incur a stricter judgment, James 3.1. It's a really big deal to God. We'll be held accountable for what we say about him, especially from the pages of his word. When someone says to a church, thus saith the Lord, We've got to reckon with the reality that we will be judged according to what follows or precedes that statement. And before we take God's word and wield it in an ungodly way, let us reckon with today's text. I'm trying to labor the significance of what God wants to say to us before we just dive in and read it mindlessly. Last week we saw in verse 8, the law is good. Only insofar as one uses it lawfully, verse 8. That means there's a radically unlawful way to use the words of God. To put it bluntly, you and I can absolutely join Satan 
in using the Bible unbiblically. That's his favorite arsenal. Such was the problem in the local church at Ephesus. I said in today's text, Paul gives the solution. Matt Nash, who's been leading our service today, meditated on last week and this week's sermon text, and he summarized it this way. The real gospel produces the right results. The opponents, verse 3 to 11, have neither the real gospel nor the real results. Paul, today's text, has both. Today's passage is a hyper-color example of why our sermon series over these three books of the Bible, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, is faithful to the gospel. What does that look like? I'm glad you asked. Join me in 1st Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, as you listen while I read the word of the living God. 1st Timothy 1, 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus, verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Join me at the throne of grace as we seek God's blessing and help. Lord, we bring your word back to you in prayer. We affirm right here and now, you are the king eternal. You are undying and unkillable. You are immortal. Beyond the best conception we've ever had, you are invisible. You are the only God. And we gladly confess that to you alone belongs all the honor, all the glory. And you deserve it for time and eternity indeed, for ages and ages, forever and ever. We also humble ourselves before you because we are completely hopeless apart from your gracious pursuit of us. We boast in Christ we agree with you, it is a trustworthy, rock-solid statement. It is an affirmation that all should affirm. It deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We also see ourselves as tied with the Apostle Paul for last place. We're the worst sinners we know. There are none worse than us. We are foremost of all. We are the chief of sinners. Apart from Christ, we would not know you. We would not be able to glorify you as we ought to render unto you the praise, the honor, the glory that you deserve as God. So with Paul, we say, thank you, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for coming from the portals of eternity, dismounting your throne to come and rescue us through your gruesome and glorious gospel labors. Thank you for the cross. Forgive us for being so numb to such love. Awaken us. Cause people to be born again today through the hearing of the gospel. Cause those who've fallen asleep to the majesty and grandeur and glory of Jesus to be touched fresh by the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Today's text, verse 12 to 17, is a contrast to last week's, verse 3 to 11. Last week, Paul assigned Timothy, stay at Ephesus. Don't go anywhere, stay put. Paul had been their pastor for three and a half years. Paul leaves and goes elsewhere. He assigns Timothy to stay there, and Timothy has an assignment. Verse 3, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. They were focusing on the minors. They were using God's word ungodly. That's part of the reason the ascended Jesus, Ephesians 4, gives pastors like Timothy to his churches like Ephesus. To quote God, Titus chapter 1 verse 9, part of a pastor's job is to twofold be able to exhort, that is teach, preach, communicate sound doctrine. And number two, refute those who contradict. It's part of the pastor's job. The dangers of the doctrines... Serious danger, red alert, siren, danger of the doctrines that were being taught by some in the church at Ephesus were significant. But do you want to know why they were able to be propagated? Because they were so subtle. Because they used the Bible. Because they quoted chapters and verses. The false teachers use God's word to shift the focus of God's people away from God's son. Is that deception not equally as rampant in our day? That's the way false teaching works. We know that the false teachers in Ephesus use biblical material to focus on meaningless matters. I said they were able to cite chapters and verses of the Bible to deviate the devotion of the church away from Christ. They would harp on some content that imperceptibly hid Christ from the eyes of the church. I'm doing an 18-part series at 3.30 on Bible interpretation. We just had part three an hour ago. These people would have loved to have taught a class on biblical genealogies. Paul said so. But instead of 20-part series, he said they could do so endlessly. Endless genealogies. They They could tell you everybody's family tree. But whether it was in a formal setting like a classroom at the church at Ephesus before the main service, or it was in the hallway before everybody walked in in a side conversation, whether it was one lecture, one official assignment, a men's day, like we're going to have on Saturday coming up soon, verse 4 says they had speculative conversations rather than God's purpose being, quote, advanced by faith. Instead of people's faith being built up, their head was swelling, pride over knowledge, rather than pursuing God's Son. The false teachers, as they all do, had a lot to say. And the net gain of their many words was, verse 5, fruitless discussions. So easy, isn't it? I mean, Jesus said we're sheep, we're easily distracted, led astray, we wander off on our own. Isn't it so easy to get God's people to talk about just about anything? The question isn't, can we have a discussion about the Bible? The question is, is it fruitful? Verse 5 says, church of Ephesus was full of fruitless discussion. But you want to know what's crazy? The people who were leading the talks had really good rhetorical skills, excellent rhetorical skills. They would win the debate even on a topic about which they were wrong because God said they could make confident assertions. It sounded awesome. But I said, you want to know what's crazy? Verse 7 says, they didn't even understand what they were talking about. They made confident assertions and did not even understand the things about which they were talking. In the end, they were focused on the wrong things because they were altogether ignorant of the real problem. You know how, do you know when it's easy to get distracted by what's not the main point, it's really easy for that to happen when the real problem is 
totally oblivious to you. You want to know what the real problem is? I love you enough to tell you, and I get no kicks out of saying it to you. I'm in the same boat with you. You are a hell-deserving sinner. That's your problem. You cannot pay your debt. You cannot fix your problem. Every half sin, not even a whole one, is worthy of eternal punishment because it's an offense against an eternal God. The sin problem being ignored makes fruitless discussions in churches really possible. But if you see your sin for what it is, and you see that because of the corresponding beauty of Christ that's being portrayed and proclaimed and revealed by the gracious Holy Spirit to His churches, which He loves to do, when the Savior is seen for who He is, revealed from first to last in the Scriptures as He is in all of His glory and His gospel accomplishments are being held high from every page and every passage, from every book of the Bible and every story in the Bible. The only hero in the whole Bible is Jesus. Then there will not be a topic that you will be able to teach from the Scriptures that's disconnected from Jesus. That's exactly what Paul does in our passage today. You see, Paul was a Bible scholar before he was saved. He was a lot like these false teachers, but not just like them. He had not professed to be a Christian. They had. But he never understood any of the Bible. Though he was trained in the best schools and became one of the best Bible leaders and teachers and scholars of his day, he never understood it until, 2 Corinthians 3, he embraced Jesus by faith. Then he saw how all the Bible pointed toward and elevates the person and gospel work of Jesus. After Paul tasted the saving mercies of Christ, he was ruined for Christless content when it came to Bible study and church upbuilding. That's why Charles Spurgeon would say things like this. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. It's all Christ. So the contrast between last week's text, verse 3 to 11, and today's text is what sound biblical teaching should cause. What should it do to you? What should it cultivate among a church? And how should it compel us to live lives that trumpet that good news to the world? In other words, here's the main brass tacks, bottom line of today's sermon text. If you don't see the gospel of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, his ascension to the Father's right hand, and his soon glorious return as increasingly relevant to your life, and to the church's entire diet and mission, if we don't see the gospel as increasingly relevant, Paul puts verses 12 to 17 right after verses 3 to 11 because he wants us to see how damnably dangerous it is to get distracted by biblical content that does not lead our soul and our spiritual siblings directly to seeing the beauty of Christ and together blasting that gospel message to the world. Well, I have to say it again. I said, that's the brass tacks. I'm going to say it again. May God help me to say it a lot more times in these few minutes today. The glorious message that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and the hyper relevance of that core Christian message for the church's mission to engage the world for all who would believe in him for eternal life, verse 16 is exactly what Paul wants Timothy and the Ephesian church to embrace. So we got four points. The first and last are really small. The second and third are not as small, but they're not huge. The first is just the structure of the passage. How does verses 12 to 17 work? Two and three take us through 12 to 16. And number four takes us to doxology, praise, and worship, verse 17. 
So first, how does this text work? What's in it? Well, if you look at verse 12 to 16, you may be able to see that there's two parts to it, 12 to 14 and 15 and 16. They're really mirror images of each other. The same content is in both parts. 12 to 14 is specific. 15 and 16 is general. The first part, 12 to 14, is Paul talking about his specific conversion and God's grace to him in Christ. How he was saved and who he was prior. Verses 15 and 16 is general. Paul is saying that same gospel again, verse 15, and how this gospel is the message that all people need, and there is eternal life for all who will believe. General. So specific to Paul, 12 to 14. General to all, 15 and 16. This is the solution to people being distracted away from Christ in his church. First, given the overview, that's what's in it. Verse 17 is then an explosion into praise. This is the only right response to the true gospel. If you believe the gospel, verses 12 to 16, verse 17 will happen to you. You will praise him. So now with that in mind, our second point, verse 12 to 14. The first part of those two mirror images. It's the title of the sermon, Gospel Grace to God's Servant. The second thing we'll look at, our third point there, verse 15 and 16, is gospel grace to God's servants, plural. First, verse 12 to 14. Look at it again. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me, Because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and persecutor and violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Paul is talking about his conversion, and he is, verse 12, thanking Christ Jesus, our Lord. The pattern of Paul's life after his conversion is unwavering. He wasn't sinless, but he was on one consistent trajectory. Once Paul met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus when he was on his way to persecute Christians and try to stamp out Christianity, once he met Jesus and embraced him by faith, he did what every person would do who also knows Jesus. He proclaimed him as Lord. Do you see verse 12? I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord. Who is the Lord? Jesus. This is the New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament Yahweh. This is the sovereign king of the ages. This is the Lord of the universe. This is not something you make him. This is something that you affirm that he is. He is Lord. And when you meet him by faith, you do as Paul did. You proclaim him as Lord and you thank him as Lord. Immediately in Acts 9, after Paul's converted, we read in Acts 9.20, immediately Paul began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Two verses later, Paul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus, where he was going to try to rid Christianity from, by proving that this Jesus is the Christ, I think. Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is an involuntary response, like a a newborn baby gasped that first breath and that sweet cry. So also newborn Christians confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Why does he thank him? Well, Paul gives reasons. If you look at verse 12, he strengthened me. He considered me faithful. He put me into service. Verse 13, even though I was this, this, and this. He's thanking Jesus in verse 12 for his strength, for his grace, for his enabling power. And then in verse 13, he's honest. I said earlier, our big problem is sin. And when that gets out of view, then we'll get distracted by all sorts of irrelevant things. But when sin is seen for what it is, because Christ is seen for who He is 
and the gospel is embraced for what it is, you can't forget things like this. Verse 13, can you remember who you were before Jesus saved you? Paul said, I was formerly, it's a big word, a blasphemer. If you read the book of Acts, you'll find in chapter 26 that Paul said, you want to know what I did? Acts 26, 11. I tried to force other Christians to blaspheme. I tried to intimidate little girls and wives when I drugged their husbands off and put them in prison and go back to their house and threaten them with terrible things. If you will say Jesus Christ is not Lord, then you won't suffer any punishment. I tried, quote, to force them to blaspheme. And I used to, Acts twenty two nineteen 19, imprison and beat those who believed in you. He was a blasphemer. He hated Jesus and anybody that had anything to do with him, but he said he's also a persecutor. What kind of persecutor? I don't know if you can see it. I don't know if you can hear the crack of the bones or if you feel the weight in his forearms as they started to give way from the load that he was holding when he held the cloaks for the men to murder Stephen with stones, but he was there. He was a persecutor. Acts 22:24 says, I persecuted the way to the death, binding and putting both men and women in prison. That's what kind of persecutor Paul was. And then he adds, a violent aggressor. One lexicon said this word in verse 13, violent aggressor, emphasizes the element of outrageous disregard for other men's rights. Violent aggression against anybody who had anything to do with Jesus. But in the sentence right before that, he said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what I think Paul would say if he were here today? He would say something like this. If you have any idea who I am, if you have any idea what I've done, and Jesus saved me, I guarantee you he can save you. I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and violent aggressor. Verse 13, yet... You talk about a transition, yet I was shown mercy. This transition is stupefying. The contrast is staggering. There is an ocean of blood-bought mercy in this little phrase, yet I was shown mercy that is incomprehensible apart from a saving relationship with Jesus. You don't know what Paul's talking about if you don't know Paul's Jesus. Lost people literally have no idea what Paul's talking about in verse 13. I was shown mercy. Can you say that sentence? Because, verse 13, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, a poor reading of that sentence would be meritorious. Because I did this, Jesus therefore owed me that. That's not what he's saying. Don't misunderstand this sentence to mean that Paul's faithlessness, unbelief, was meritorious. Paul is not saying, because I was an ignorant unbeliever, therefore I merited God's mercy. Just to clarify, unbelief is itself a sin. It's a reason God should not have mercy on you. Now, I told you earlier, I love you enough. I don't get any kicks out of this, and I said that, and I'm saying it again, of telling you you're a hell-deserving sinner. There's no pleasure in saying that to you. It is love. I also love you enough to tell you that not believing in Jesus is a sin. To quote God, anything that does not come from faith is sin. Romans 14. So 
far from meriting God's favor because he was ignorant in his unbelief, he was actually compounding his reasons that God should not save him. Paul has nothing with which to commend himself to God. He is absolutely flabbergasted that Jesus saved him. Paul is contrasting himself with the false teachers at Ephesus in this phrase. He was ignorant. He thought he knew what was right. He was acting accordingly and he found out he was dead wrong. These people in the church at Ephesus who are seeking to deviate the church's focus away from Jesus, using Jesus' very word as their weapon, they're not acting ignorantly. They're not doing what Paul was doing. They are eyes wide open and they are blind. There's two categories of sin that are shared with us in the Old Testament, at least two. There's this willful, high-handed mutiny against the king of glory. There's this put your fist in God's face saying to God, you will not rule over me. You will not tell me what to do. That's when God talks about stiff neck, hard heart, recalcitrant rebellion against God. All of us are guilty of that. In the Old Testament, there's also this ignorant, hidden fault. You don't know what you don't know. You're sinning in honest ignorance, but it's still sin. To use Christ's written word to take the focus off of Christ himself in the presence of the people of Christ is among the most satanic sins of all. That's what Satan's been doing since Genesis 3. He's been using God's word to draw God's people away from God. That's why this is a huge deal to Paul in the church at Ephesus. Raven S. said that the difference is that when Paul persecuted the churches, he had not yet professed faith in Jesus. He never did that again after he came to Christ. But these false teachers, quote, professed to follow Christ, but still acted to undermine the influence of Christ in the church. Now, if you want a sentence that just stacks on top of itself and makes you feel the flood of what mercy is that comes from the cross of Jesus, look at verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. It's hard to translate this word into English. It's super abundant. One lexicon said to run over and to overflow. This sentence is why we sing songs like There is more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in me. What's the line I'm trying to think of? You all know what I'm talking about. Say it loud because I'm also blind and deaf. Uh, what is it? Yeah, his mercy is more. The grace of our Lord was more than abundant. You know what Paul's doing in verse 14? He's still being stunned by the grace that Jesus not only did, but is showing to him. He's literally sitting under the waterfall of the grace of the cross while he's writing his grace toward me, toward me. He can't get over it. Why did he have mercy on me? But it's not past tense. It's a more than abundant. It's a superfluous, overflowing, never ceasing, constant river coming from the heart of God toward Paul. He can't escape this grace. This salvation that Jesus mercifully gave to Paul. Paul, the blaspheming, persecuting, violent aggressor against Jesus' people, came with a threefold gift. Faith toward Christ, verse 14. Love toward His people because, verse 14, these are found in Christ Jesus. When Paul came to a saving relationship with Jesus of Nazareth and came to see irreversibly He is the Christ 
He was moved from unbelief to faith. That's verse 14, with faith. And he was moved from hatred to love. You know who you can't hate? Do you know who it's impossible for you to hate? Somebody that you totally believe has experienced the same grace from Jesus that you have. If you're going to be shoulder to shoulder with them in eternity, you get faith in Jesus and love toward them because they're both, verse 14, found in Christ Jesus. That's gospel grace to God's servant. That's the specific. Generally, he applies this to everybody, verse 15 and 16. He says the same thing, so I'll just show it to you. But it's to servants. Verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I'm the foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. When Paul says in verse 15, it's a trustworthy statement, it deserves full acceptance. That's one of those New Testament indicators, which means that's probably a phrase or a chorus of a song, like I just asked you guys to give me, that New Testament churches were familiar with. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's their phrase. They know that statement, and it deserves full acceptance. It's wrong not to accept that. There's nothing more important Nothing must be more fully accepted than this statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There's five things in that statement. Who came? Christ Jesus. That's not his first and last name. His earthly name, Jesus, who is the Christ. That's the long-awaited Old Testament Messiah who was promised to come to this earth from heaven as God himself, robed in humanity. That's who came, Christ Jesus. From whence did he come? He came, it's not in the statement, but he has to come from somewhere. And the scriptures reveal plainly and repletely, he came from the Father's side. He came from the portals of eternity. He came from everlastingness. Isaiah 57, 15, he came from the address that he inhabits called eternity. To where did he come? Into the world. That's where humans live but he came here because that's where humans sin. It is from this abode that we must be redeemed. A sacrifice must be offered where we committed our crimes, where our sin happened, and therefore necessarily where our sacrifice must be offered. Who came Christ? Where did he, where did he come from? Eternity. To where did he come? The world. Why did he come? To save. That's why he came. If he wanted everybody to perish, he could have stayed unharmed and happy in heaven. He wants you to be saved more than you want to be saved. That's why he came. That's his purpose. That's his initiative. You didn't come up with the plan. If you would have, you, wouldn't have not, you would not have had the audaciousness to suggest it to God. God devised the plan because God came in his son to save whom did he come to save? Congratulations, you are qualified. Sinners. If you're so righteous that you don't need a savior, I have very bad news for you. But if you know yourself to be a sinner who cannot save yourself, I have gloriously good news for you. You are precisely the person that God came to save. In Romans 1 through 3, Paul lays out a diatribe. That's an argument against an imaginary opponent. What might they say? Okay, here's the answer. What else might they say? Okay, here's the answer. What else might they say? Okay, here's the answer. You know what Romans 1 to 3 says? Everybody's a sinner. You're all guilty. It ends by saying a verse you all know, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the end of Romans 1 through 3. And in chapter 5 of Romans, Paul says... You want to know who you were? You were ungodly. You were enemies. You hated God. 
You weren't his friend. And it's to those people that he demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is why he came. This is a statement that New Testament churches knew. It is a trustworthy statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And it is one that deserves your full acceptance. If you give anything less than full acceptance to that saving truth, you don't have any hope. And Paul says in verse 15, a familiar line, among whom I am the foremost of all. That is chief or worst. There are no sinners that Paul knows that are worse than Paul. There's been a lot of ink spilled and sermons preached about that phrase. To some, it sounds like an exaggeration. After all, Paul was pretty squeaky clean before he got saved in terms of synagogue going, church going, and law studying, and Pharisee advancing. He had righteousness on the outside. I think that's exactly why Paul says I'm the worst of all. Because I want to speak so clearly here. God, please help me. There are people who have sinned worse than you. There are people that you can think of that have done things that are worse than the things you have done. But just because you have not acted on the capacity of your depravity does not mean that you possess any less of it. Because God in his mercy has restrained you from doing what you're capable of does not mean you are any less sinful. And when Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners, I think it's precisely because the category of sin that he sinned is, I believe, the worst stench in God's nostrils. Paul's sin was self-righteousness. Paul's sin was the pride of pretending that he was clean before God without Jesus. It was a self-righteousness, and I do believe that is the worst stench in God's nostrils because self-righteousness necessarily says to God, I appreciate you sending Jesus and all that, but I could have done it on my own. And Paul says, I'm the worst sinner I know. But why does he say it? Verse 16, that in me as the worst, the foremost, the chief, if God can save me, Jesus Christ can demonstrate his perfect patience in me as an example for everybody who would believe in him for eternal life. Nobody can say, if you knew who I am and what I've done, then you wouldn't think God could save me either. The exhibit A is the Apostle Paul. If he can save him, and he did, he can save you. And if you'll throw yourself into the merciful arms of Jesus, he will. It's what the gospel does to a man. It evaporates any sense of self-worth in God's sight. Comparing yourself to other sinners, you see yourself only as the worst. When the gospel takes hold of you, you can't imagine anybody on the planet in need of more grace than you. That's why we say around here, the gospel must tear you all the way down before it can build you up. All the way down. And I'm not going to go into autobiography because it would be long. But I will say there are times as recent as this week where my sin makes me wonder how could God have mercy on somebody like me? And then to be met with mercy, to be met with grace, that does something to you if you're in Christ. Paul said, then sin becomes utterly sinful. 
Sin becomes so distasteful because the artesian well of Christ is so sweet to you that you feel like the biggest fool in the universe for going back to the sewage water of your own sin. So if you can live in that without a salvation for Christ, you've never had His salvation. But if in Christ you find yourself going back and loathing yourself and asking God for mercy not to leave you there, guess who doesn't care about that? Lost people. Christians want to live in the light of Christ. John 3, told you I could say a lot about it. I'll close with this. It's an illustration I've given you before. I only use this person because they are the most Christ-like person I know. So, uh, some of you, you know, tried to do your best on Valentine's Day, and I tried my best, and my best wasn't very impressive, but it was an effort. But sometimes when Tracy and I are on these special occasions, and we didn't go on date night on Valentine's, but sometimes when we do, and I've used this illustration, I'll say things to Tracy like, babe, I just wanted you to know you're the most wicked depraved, sin-sick, hell-bent sinner that's ever touched God's planet. And if he would take his hand out from under your life, you would plummet into the lowest corner of the devil's hell for a trillion eternities. Now, you might not have expected me to say that if you know Tracy. Maybe you were expecting me to say all the sweet niceties, which are true. They are true. If you know Tracy, you know. If you know her at all, you know She's sweet and approachable, soft-spoken, tender-hearted. She'll cry with you in a split second. She's motherly. She's kind. She's the kind of person that a lot of people go to for words of wisdom and counsel and advice. She's omnicompetent. She does all sorts of stuff for all sorts of people inside and outside of our house. She's all those things. Here's why I said I used Tracy as that example. God doesn't save anybody because they're sweet and tender-hearted and motherly and soft-spoken and non-confrontational, easy to get along with, approachable. Even the best of us are so sick with our sin problem that if Christ Jesus doesn't come into the world to save sinners, the best of us have no hope. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. So here's what the gospel does to somebody who says, yes, Christ Jesus is Lord. Deserving full acceptance. You saved Paul as a testimony so that any who would believe in him by faith would have eternal life. That's what you say in verse 16. I rest all my hope in Jesus. You want to know what happens to those people? Verse 17. Erupting into praise. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. When he says King eternal, Paul is bowing before the King of the kingdom to the sovereign rule of God alone. I give you my whole life. I'm not going to try to draw any more lines. You're the king. I'm not. I just worship you as the king. You are in control, and I submit to you 10,000. I give you my life. Immortal. Paul's affirming that his salvation is, is secure because his Savior can never perish. If you can kill Jesus, then you can take away Paul's salvation. But until you do that, and the apostle Peter said when Jesus was raised from the dead, never to die again because it's impossible for that to happen to him. If you can kill Jesus again, then you can take away Paul's salvation. But until then, he is secure because his Savior is immortal. Invisible. Paul also wrote that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the visible, invisible God. Later in this letter, he says, no one has seen or can see God because he dwells in unapproachable light. He's speaking of his transcendence, his holy otherness, that he's bigger than you've ever imagined. And he says he's the only God. Paul's an unabashed monotheist. 
He's writing this letter to Timothy, who's the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And in the city of Ephesus, there was a temple to Artemis, a false god of the Greeks. And Paul is writing this letter to that church in that city, saying there are no other gods. Manos theos, the only God. We are monotheistic to him alone. Be adulation and reverence. To him alone be honor. To him alone be glory. And to him alone be honor and glory into the ages of the ages, into the forever of the forevers, into eternity. And then he caps it in verse 17 with amen. That's so let it be. That's yes, Lord, do it. This is invoking a response from the readers. Can you add your amen to what Paul said about Christ, the gospel, salvation, and God getting all the glory? So I conclude, please, please, don't hear a message that's one of the most gospel-drenched passages concentrated in the New Testament and remain in your insolent rebellion. Turn from your ignorance Rid your heart of wielding God's word to distract people from Christ. Humble yourself. Beg for God's mercy. Thrust your helpless soul into the arms of Almighty King Jesus. Surrender yourself, body, soul, and mind. All your dreams, hopes, relationships, all your ambitions, pleasures, joys, everything you want, give your whole self to the Lord Jesus Christ because he gave his whole self for your salvation. He's so close to you that he came into the world to save sinners. And he's so above you that he's the eternal king that you can't even comprehend, verse 17. Many in the church have spiritual cataracts. They have eye floaters. They use God's word, but inevitably, the more they study and teach it, the focal point becomes something other than God's son. And Paul wanted the church at Ephesus to know that anything that distracts our focus from Christ is eternally dangerous. So if you want a true north and you want a plumb line, here it is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let's pray together. Father, as we contemplate your word and run to your son, I don't have a flowery prayer to pray. I just have verse 12. Thank you, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for saving sinners. In Jesus' name.